You're listening to John Anderson Direct with Brett Weinstein. John Anderson Direct is recorded live via online streaming, meaning sometimes the sound quality is less than optimum. Today I'm really honoured to be joined by a very engaging Brett Weinstein, host of the popular Dark Horse podcast, former professor of biology at Evergreen State College in Washington State. Brett is a profoundly insightful cultural analyst who seems to use his hard sciences toolkit of observation and deduction to diagnose the ever-present political and social challenges that we're now facing in the West. Uh, Brett, thanks very much indeed for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I didn't want to go into it too much in my introduction, but you first sprung to international prominence when you took a stand against what we might call reverse racism at your former college, Evergreen State College. Now, some of our viewers, particularly in this country, Australia, may not be familiar with that episode. It's very important. It's very illustrative. Could you tell us a little about what was going on at Evergreen and what you did about it and why you did what you did? Sure. So my wife and I were teaching at Evergreen. My wife was literally Evergreen's most popular professor. I wasn't too far behind, and we had a large community of evolutionarily interested students that uh, we bounced back and forth between our programs, sometimes teaching together. In 2016, the new president of the college started to advance uh, equity proposals. Um, Equity is the wrong term, but that was the banner under which they flew. And he impaneled a committee to study the problem of racism at Evergreen and to propose solutions. And these solutions, when they were unveiled, were absolutely alarming and seemed to be remedies to a problem that actually did not exist on our campus, as far as anyone could tell. So I asked for the evidence that we had a problem with white supremacy. None was delivered. And I pointed out to my faculty colleagues the danger that these proposals Uh, constituted and the likely consequence of their adoption, I felt, being the the bankruptcy of the institution and the loss of our student body. Uh, When I pointed these things out, I was portrayed as a racist. And in May of 2017, a protest uh, was organized and erupted at my classroom, very much by surprise to me, 50 students I had never met, protested my stance against what was called the Day of Absence, which was a proposed day of racial segregation, strongly backed by the college administration. Um, I had said over email when this was announced that I would not be participating and would be on campus despite my light skin color. And uh, this was taken to be evidence that uh, I was interested in preserving the white supremacy that was alleged to be on the campus. The campus then descended into riots. Um, The library building was barricaded. Administrators were held effectively hostage as they negotiated with the protesters. The event was spectacularly colorful, and the protesters who became rioters filmed all of it and uploaded it to Facebook. It later made its way to YouTube and caught the world's attention. If you're interested in what this all looked like, Mike Nana, who is Australian, um, has done a wonderful three-part documentary that you can look up on YouTube on the Evergreen 
meltdown. Now you asked me why I did what I did. I did what I did because what was being proposed was a radical departure from the values that I held and that until uh, 2016 I thought I shared with my colleagues and um, my obligation was to the students and I felt that I had no choice but to point out the hazard of these proposals. The, it seems significant to me that you say that the 50 students that you that initially confronted you were not known to you. It seems to me to be one of the elements of a great deal of the sort of disturbances that we're seeing at the moment, the wild claims that are made, is that they come from people who will not sit down and engage and really understand where you're coming from. It's more about sloganeering. It's more about, if I can put it this way, raw power. It's, it's more about political mayhem than it is about real engagement. There's no question about that. And, uh, you know, I tried to engage the students. I think this was one of the things that caught the public's attention. I tried, I remained calm, I tried to reason with them, and I was secure in the knowledge that I wasn't what they were accusing me of, uh, which seemed to enrage them. But I think this is about power, and students who knew me would never have made these allegations because they would have known better. And in fact, I strongly suspect that those who organized the protest expected my students to jump ship and to join them and were surprised when they didn't. But the fact is, the way I had taught left no doubt in the minds of people who knew me that I didn't harbor the bigotry that I was being accused of and that this was really a protest of convenience rather than conviction. Yeah, uh, so just to explore that a little bit, it seems to me that what you're seeing is a protest movement again, what's seen as um, the, the inappropriate use of power with somehow the promise that they, when they have power, will use it more responsibly, but it's all about protesting power and insisting that our power would be better, which on the surface of it sounds like a recipe, given what we know of human nature, for very bad outcomes. Yes, I mean... It's preposterous that we're going to have to discover that these things are once again false because it's completely transparent. People respond to incentives. Once you establish the ability of one group to dethrone another group simply through accusation, it will, of course, be adopted by bad actors. And in the case of Evergreen, it was very clear. You had a lot of people who were confused about what they were doing and a small number of people who knew full well what they were doing, and the combination did wield a lot of power. Um, but the chances that it was going to result in an improvement to the college were zero from the get-go. Yeah. So, Brett, to change gears a little bit then uh, and to start to explore some of these issues, I think it was your own brother, Eric, who coined the term the intellectual dark web. Uh, and I'd be interested in some exploration of what the dark web is. The Guardian, for example, apparently claims that it's a sort of drug gateway, if you like, or a kind of gateway drug to the, to the so-called alternate right. Uh, but I would have thought that would be something that would rankle with you because you do not see yourself as right-wing or left-wing. And then I'd love to talk to you a bit more about whether those terms are even relevant anymore, frankly. Uh, but here are these claims that you're associating with... Uh, with a movement that is somehow or other um, uh, something that you are not. So what, what is it or was the dark web? Uh, and how is it distinguishable from, say, the mainstream media? 
Well, first we have to distinguish the dark web from the intellectual dark web, because the dark web is um, an actual phenomenon in which uh, it's basically a, a black market on the internet, um, a legitimate uh, it is the business that takes place there is largely illegitimate, but it is an actually existing network of people exchanging money for various things. So when Eric named the intellectual dark web, it was with a wink, recognizing that effectively he was portraying heterodox ideas uh, as uh, if it was the exchange of contraband goods, because although certainly those who traffic in heterodox ideas don't view it that way. We knew that we would be portrayed as if we were doing that. So the intellectual dark web, uh, well, Eric's initial definition for it was an alternative sense-making network that in effect the failure of mainstream media and other institutions to make recognizable sense of the world left a niche open for those who were willing to navigate that space and wield an alternative toolkit. So in effect, if you group together people who are courageous enough to stare down stigmas and who think from first principles, they are capable of outcompeting the mainstream media and in many cases academic fields by simply recognizing the patterns in the world and grappling with them. So. The intellectual dark web was composed of a number of people from all across the political spectrum. The accusation that it was in any way a right-wing movement was preposterous. It happens that more than half of the people who were uh, initially labeled as participating in the intellectual dark web were actually left of center. I myself am quite far left of center. And in effect, this was a non-ideological attempt to sort out truth from fiction by grouping people from different perspectives and engaging each other in good faith. So in a sense, it seems to me that the old definitions of left and right are becoming less and less relevant. We need to find some new first principles, if you like. And at heart, you've just mentioned a couple of words there that sort of play into, I think, that idea. Uh, those who are committed to reason and pursuing evidence and those who want to, if you like, develop emotionally charged arguments that have more to do with power than with defensible philosophies, if I can put it that way. Well, I think this is, this is quite right. And I, although I think there is some value left in recognizing um, the traditional political spectrum, I think what has happened is that we have actually reached fairly broad agreement about what values society should uphold. And across the spectrum, uh, those in the West more or less agree that society ought to be as free as possible, as fair as possible, and uh, that whatever structures are necessary to provide that freedom and fairness are defensible. So, for example, if one looks at uh, the Hidden Tribes Report, there is what they call an exhausted middle in the U.S. of something like 67% of the population that... Um, rejects the viewpoint of both fringes and broadly agrees on what it is that uh, are the desirable goals of society should be. Now, there are still differences between left and right. We tend to differ over how close we think we are to achieving goals and what remedies might be worth entertaining in order to cover the rest of the distance. But that is, in fact, a small divergence, not a large one. 
yeah, understand what you're saying. Well, then to come to those, if you like, creating a framework for moving forward, um, you've been a very outspoken advocate of um, the need for the free exchange of ideas, because in the end, I guess that's what freedom of speech is really about. And yet increasingly, the free exchange of ideas takes place now on the very things we're using, massive social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Um, on the, uh, in October 2020, you were actually banned from Facebook. You've also had issues with Twitter. Of course, uh, President Trump now has been banned from Twitter. It was interesting to see the global response because there were many people from left of centre, I think, who very honourably said, this is not a good thing. Uh, but nonetheless, it's happened. Uh, we've seen alternative platforms like Parler uh, shut down. Last year, you tweeted, I thought, very significantly, social media platforms, I'm quoting here, are innovating a new totalitarianism. The key, selective enforcement of vague rules triggered by user reports. Now, totalitarianism is a strong word. Would you distinguish between the hard totalitarianism of a Stalin or a Mao and a soft totalitarianism that may be emerging in the West? Would you make a distinction there? Oh, absolutely. Um, the purpose of totalitarianism is basically the, the concentration and maintenance of power. And we live in a very different world. So the tools that might have been necessary to totalitarianism 50 uh, or more years ago are no longer optimal from the point of view of maintaining control. So I would, what I would suggest is that we are entering an era of what I would call surgical totalitarianism, where the least force necessary will be applied to prevent change or to shift the population's belief structure in a given direction. And that necessary amount of force may be relatively small, but um, e even if it is small, it is no less frightening because of its net effect. When we have to change, and I would argue that we do have to change, the ability to frustrate that change by punishing a tiny number of people or eliminating their ability to reach an audience, um, that may be sufficient to do it. And it frankly exposes us to incredible danger that processes that we need to end will continue until it's too late. So it seems to me that it's legitimate to be concerned that these, uh, that the media and online platforms both, uh, we see it certainly in my country, and as an outsider looking at America, these things seem to be at force. They're coming perilously close to seeing their role, their job, if you like, in terms of determining what we may and may not think and say, even to the extent of seeking to manipulate democratic outcomes. There seems to be a bit of a scorn there for the view of well, perhaps I could put it this way, that 67% in the middle uh, who don't share what some might call elite views. In America, they might say East and West Coast views. In, in, in our country, here they might say the people with the megaphones. Yes, I think it actually comes down to the use and abuse of the term uh, the right side of history. Now, I find the right side of history is a very useful concept. We can look back at episodes from history and recognize that people in them may have been divided over which side they were on, but that we, with the benefit of hindsight, understand one set to have been simply in the wrong. 
Now, the problem with that is that looking at the present, it is not always simple to determine which the right side of history is, and the temptation to grab the mantle of the right side is ever-present. So what we effectively have is the arrogance of, at the moment, especially the blue team, those aligned with the Democrats in the U.S., who believe that they are so correct about the state of society and the direction in which we should move that they effectively have the moral authority to stamp out alternative opinions. And nothing could be more frightening because not only are the people in charge of deciding what the acceptable opinions are uh, utterly fallible, and not only are the issues in question incredibly complicated, but the, um, the corruption of the system is absolutely out of control. So we have a system of perverse incentives that cause things that are absolutely hazardous to the public to be advanced in, uh, ostensibly in the public's interest. And we simply have to have a, a place where we can discuss what is occurring, what is correct. We have to be able to advance heterodox ideas and defend them rather than have them ruled out from the get-go. And if we don't have that, then we will most certainly suffer uh, repeated instances of self-inflicted wounds and uh, avoidable catastrophes that we will fail to avoid. This, um, to pick up this idea, Brett, that you've touched on there of um, this arrogance of believing that you're absolutely right uh, again, common to all Western countries, but as a great admirer of America who still looks to America to lead the free world and to defend liberal democratic values, we see this massive polarisation and an incoming president who makes a very fine speech about the need to repair the polarisation, bring people back together. But what worries me is that in fact, by rapidly repealing everything that Trump did by, uh, if you like, not going out and seeking, unless I'm missing something, to actually hear what people in those red states are saying. Why did so many Americans, they can't all be terrible people. To suggest that they're all deplorables is to say that huge chunks of the American people are just unworthy, that they're deplorable. And to not seek to understand why they have a different perspective, to hear what they've got to say, to at least extend to them the respect, surely, that is due them as American citizens, risks, does it not, just locking in that very dangerous smugness that alienates so many people that you end up with the very thing you say you're against, Uh, you know, a, a whole section of the community that is just so anti the establishment, feels so locked out that they will not come back inside the tent. Yes, I think this is absolutely inevitable and that in effect what we are watching is a president who has embraced the idea of unity but is wielding it as a weapon. And I very much hope I'm wrong about that. I believe unity is going to be key to America finding its way again. But at the moment, the danger is that um, excesses will be tolerated so long as they are wrapped in the banner of unity. Now, as far as the divisions we have and you know, some 70 million voters who are uh, viewed as insubordinate and 
uh, un-American by the new ruling establishment, this is a preposterous notion. I can tell you, as somebody who comes from uh, the far left, that uh, after the incident at Evergreen, I was widely embraced by people on the center-right. So I know a lot of folks uh, who do not view this uh, blue wave as uh, a great relief. And the things that are typically said about them are simply not true. These are not racists looking to preserve white advantage or something like this. They're not even especially traditional. They just simply do not accept uh, some of the proclamations that are coming from the blue team that I think are, frankly, uh, transparently questionable. Again, it raises in my mind the idea that it's more about power than, if, you, if I can use an old-fashioned word, building a civilized society in which people can flourish. It is, and in fact, oh, go ahead. No, no, no well, I'd be interested in your views on that. Uh, the objective ought to be, I think, wherever you come from politically, if you're a civilized human being, that's a word people don't like much anymore, but I'm going to use it anyway. Surely the argument should be around how do we create a society in which the greatest number of people possible can flourish, reach their potential, enjoy their lives, pursue in the American word happiness. It just seems now that so much of it is about a struggle for raw, ugly, demeaning power, the very thing that democracy was designed to rein in. Yes, I would agree with that diagnosis exactly, that um, it ought to be our uh, our obligation to deliver as many people a liberated, um, uh, pleasant, freeing life in which they can do meaningful things. And the struggle for power, which is inherently a limited resource, has caused reality to be bent by both sides, frankly. And um, one thing I've said that so far has not been uh, widely accepted uh, in the West, but I nonetheless believe is central, is that corruption is at the root of our problem. Donald Trump was a symptom of corruption, as is the widespread unrest that led to the BLM riots this summer. There is a widespread, widely held view that something is wrong, that the system is rigged, and I think it's correct. Now, the fact that people who believe that latch on to false notions of what it is that is causing the dysfunction is perhaps inevitable, um, but that we are divided is really about um, two cynical parties battling for power and uh, using the public good uh, as a tool and a weapon. Yes, I, that's the way it looks from the outside. And you know, in my own country, we, we need to heed the warning signs, I think, because I think uh, we've not reached that degree of polarization. And part of my life objective, for what it's worth, is to try and, try and play my little bit to say we shouldn't uh, put ourselves on a path where we continue the drift towards more and more polarization. Part of that polarization, though, and that feeling of being shut out has produced something that I think is remarkable. Uh, and they're the very popular uh, shows like, um, you know, the sort of podcast shows, the Joe Rogan Experience, your own Dark Horse podcast, the Ben Shapiro show. They dive very deeply into these issues. 
And I found in this country with this series that, that I host an enormous thirst, including amongst a surprising number of younger people, for in-depth analysis. And I, I guess it springs from that very thing you were talking about, that those people in the middle who are deeply concerned about what's happening, but they feel pretty powerless. Should We're seeing this pickup in engagement by thinkers, by people who think rational, calm, evidence-based reasoning matters. That's encouraging. But given the frightening power of the opposing forces now, do you think uh, it's it's becoming less likely that we can haul back uh, the, the 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 drift? Well, you know, I I uh, see both of the features that that you do. I see a surprising, well, maybe not surprising to us, but surprising to many, interest on the part of a large fraction of the public in doing the hard work of thinking through complex issues and not defaulting into overly uh, simplistic assessments. There, there is a huge audience for this. There's no question about it. Um, on the other hand, it is genuinely threatening to those who wish to, to maintain or capture power for its own sake, and they will therefore take up arms against it, and in fact, they already are. So what, what frightens me most in the U.S., and I think it's really a general problem across the West, is that the freedoms that are, for example, uh, so well delineated in the American founding documents are not built for an environment in which the public square is now living on private servers. So the uh, ability of tech platforms, for example, that align with one of the parties politically to banish people who voice ideas threatening to them uh, under false pretenses, that, uh, that power is immense and their willingness to wield it is um, quite clear. So, you know, in the U.S. people will recognize that in the aftermath of the uh, the insurrection at the Capitol, there was a wave of um, banishments from social media, but uh, the the cover story that was effectively delivered that these were uh, fringe conservatives, that these were people from the far right, doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And I would point out, as you alluded to earlier, that these same uh, forces that... Um, banished many accounts from social media in the aftermath of the, uh, the insurrection event, um, also banished the unity movement, which is the movement I started in the U.S. to beat the duopoly uh, at the electoral game. We were thrown off of Twitter under false pretenses. We uh, investigated the claims that were made against us. There was no truth in them, and yet the account remains suspended to this day. Um, and there's no rational basis on which it might be accused of being uh, far right, because in fact the uh, the movement was built to to be non-ideological, non-partisan, and to sit dead center. So um, there is no question the platforms have immense power. They are willing to wield it, and they are willing to wield it against anything that threatens them, including the truth. Yes, I was going to come to this very interesting question uh, of the political movement that you set up, Unity 2020. Can you just tell us a little bit more about it, Brett? And, and, and uh, you know, you plainly saw the failings on the part of the two major parties. 
you wanted to occupy the centre, um, or at least, I guess, I would say, uh, without wanting to put words in your mouth, create an environment where you can have the high quality exchange of ideas. That is the only way you arrive at the best possible policy outcomes and get the maximum buy-in to those ideas. And I assume that's where you were trying to position yourselves. Can you tell us a little more about it and where you see it going now? Yes. So the proposal, the Unity 2020 proposal, involved taking two people, one from the center right, one from the center left, pairing them on a team. That team would come together under the agreement that all decisions made would be made jointly, um, except in circumstances where that was impossible, for example, where something did not present enough time to make a joint decision. But in effect, a power-sharing arrangement between a capable, courageous patriot from the left and a capable, courageous patriot from the right, um, that one of them would be determined by coin flip to run for the top seat, that is the presidency, the other would run for the vice presidency, and after four years, the roles would reverse, uh, and hopefully they would be reelected. And in this way, everyone could be assured that this was not a power grab from one side against the other, but it was really the, uh, the reflection of um, American ideals and a willingness to, to compromise and find what's best for the nation. Um, so in any case, that created a stir. I think there's some possibility that the um, success of the term unity in uh, gaining people's attention and uh, raising their interest may in fact be part of what spurred the Democratic Party to embrace this term, what I would say is uh, cynically in the run-up to the election and uh, in their publicity since. Um, but we did run into uh, several different obstacles. One of them was that the tech platforms were not interested in any challenge to the duopoly, and in the end, they allowed uh, our detractors to trigger mechanisms that got us thrown off the platform, even though the accusations were simply false. Um, the other thing we ran into was fear by people on both sides that there was no uh, there was no freedom to depart from their official party ticket without empowering the other one. Now, we structured the proposal to minimize the chances that we could have a spoiler effect on the election. But nonetheless, Americans have been so trained that the only choices that they are allowed to make are major party choices, that they uh, were slow to recognize that the plan uh, had a built-in immunity to the thing that they feared. And talking of, of, of unity, COVID, um, it strikes me as very interesting and concerning that one would have thought a common enemy like COVID might have pulled the American people together. In fact, from where we sit, it's not immediately obvious, I'd have to say, that that has been what's happened. What do you think the whole COVID experience has said about modern America as opposed to the America that has pulled together so effectively on so many issues, including of a global challenging nature in the past? Well, I think it's revealed some very unfortunate things. Um, in fact, it's revealed that some American strengths created a vulnerability in this case. 
Um, but I, I would put the, the revelations in, in two categories. One, there's something about the uh, basic American character and our, uh, our desire to champion freedom as our highest value, something which I believe is legitimate, that that upended us because uh, incursions on freedom which were necessary to control the virus uh, were viewed with suspicion in part because they were wielded by a government that people don't trust. So that caused us to shoot ourselves in the foot, more or less. We have a much worse problem with COVID than we should have had because the issue, instead of galvanizing us, which I agree it should have, polarized us, and both sides used the matter for political advantage and signaling. And this uh, caused us to waste valuable time to misplay the epidemic such that uh, many more people got sick uh, than would have. And to this day, it is hampering our efforts to control the virus, which is going to have negative impacts on the world. Yeah, there's a sense in which this might seem a long bow, but I think of the America of the past, the America that has taken such a global leadership role since the end of the Second World War. The magnanimity towards opponents, the recognition that you win people over by reaching out rather than by clobbering them, has had a great deal to do with the fact that we've had really, people seem to contest this, but years of, of peace, relative peace, and progress, uh, the number of people globally that have been lifted out of poverty, that have enjoyed more political and personal freedoms and so forth, has a lot to do with what happened after the Second World War, when having perhaps learnt the lesson of the stupidity of the way in which the Allies uh, dealt with a defeated Germany in 1918 after 1945, just to think of, to, to highlight two examples, the extraordinary way in which America set out deliberately, intentionally, cleverly and wisely to win Japan back a place, if you like, at the, at the table of nations and is now a great friend and ally. And then you think of the Marshall Plan, a smashed Europe, and America still dealing with very, very large debts and fallout from the war itself, finding 13 billion at the time to rebuild Europe, attached wisely the right strings, this money is available if you break down your trade barriers, if you do this, if you open up, if you reform, and it all happened. That was an example of a par excellence, if you like, of, of magnanimity towards those who had been your enemies. That seems to have completely gone out of the door in this power struggle that we now see between opposing forces. That bigness of spirit, that generosity of spirit, that wisdom. Yeah, I think we have lost sight of our greatest strength and we have defaulted into a much more cynical, much less capable prior mode in which we view our enemies uh, as inherently defective. And in fact, we all too easily view them as something less than human. It is in fact a property that people uh, have before they go to war on another population or commit genocide. So we have begun to view even our political enemies within our own nation as uh, so broken as to be not worthy of standard human dignity. And it's a terrible error. I would also say 
it is the result of a very corrupt and cynical political process, one that does not proceed from the basic premise that we uh, have more that unites us than divides us, and frankly, that we have more to lose in uh, being divided uh, than we have to gain. So that is to say, if you have different corporations having signed up with different political parties battling for effectively market share, they may not view the long-term well-being of the United States as important. It may be a secondary concern, but to Americans, it ought to be our primary concern. And viewing other Americans with generosity, and indeed, as you point out, viewing others around the world with that same spirit uh, is a great strength, and it's one that we should return to as quickly as possible. I can only say, as uh, somebody from an allied country, uh, the sooner the better. We need you. I, I don't think we can put it any other way. Uh, John Major, when he spoke to the Australian Parliament, when he was the British uh, uh, Prime Minister some years ago, said that we may occasionally find fault with our American cousins, but let's be honest, there is no major problem confronting humanity that cannot be resolved without the full engagement and commitment of the United States. And I believe that to be true. So uh, uh, I must say that I'm one who, who shares the views that you've just put. Let me let me come to the issue of conspiracy theories. We've heard an incredible amount about that lately. Uh, and um, uh, I think you've said quite a bit about it yourself. Um, arguably, I guess they arise because uh, traditional media is, uh, you know, really, I think, uh, thrown away uh, its trustworthiness in the eyes of a lot of people. But it's also because there's information overload from the internet. There's a lack of gatekeepers. Perhaps and you come from an academic background where I understand you had a very um, interesting and effective way of communicating and teaching uh, your students. Perhaps now, though, there is a lack of critical thinking. Um, given that conspiracies do happen, uh, you know, we know they happen, the problem becomes how do you tell the difference between a plausible and uh, a, you know, a genuinely worrying uh, conspiracy uh, and something that's really more related to incompetence or uh, the use of vernacular or stuff up, because it's pretty important stuff. Uh, you know, I, I've met intelligent and reasonable Australians that I respect who believe there was a conspiracy to uh, rig things in the recent election in America, in this country. So, there, 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 you know, the, how do we understand which conspiracies do you think, Brett, we need to take note of and be worried about and which we can consign to the rubbish bin? Uh, there's several tools that we need available to us. The first one you mentioned, which is the recognition that collusion is not uncommon and therefore the simple fact of wondering whether it has taken place is not evidence of a mental defect. So collusion is natural. Um, but the second thing to realize is that when collusion happens, it automatically comes with an attempt to disguise itself. And therefore, the normal tools that we would use to detect what the nature of some pattern we are looking at is and what its cause might be, those tools are often not functional because those who have colluded will have organized evidence so that we will reach a wrong conclusion and uh, fail to see their role. So in effect, Occam's razor, although it would work if we had all of the information, is gamed by those who would collude. But I would argue that actually the biggest um, 
the most important tool at our disposal is simply the scientific method and the recognition that the term conspiracy theory itself is a weapon used to dismiss those who wonder about the explanations for certain events. And there is no reason that we should be using conspiracy theory because the word theory means a hypothesis that has withstood test. It is not the notion that something may have taken place. The notion that something may have taken place, if it is testable, is a hypothesis inherently. And so what I do is I use the term conspiracy hypothesis. And what that means when I say conspiracy hypothesis rather than conspiracy theory, what I'm intending to imply is that the toolkit that one uses to evaluate these different explanations is well understood to us. There are shelves in your college libraries dedicated to the philosophy of science, and that is to say the rules of engagement for evaluating competing hypotheses. To put something in this modality, to describe something as a conspiracy hypothesis, is to invoke the standards by which it is to be properly judged, and it is also to say that the fact that one considers a given explanation does not rule out the consideration of others. A person can simultaneously entertain multiple hypotheses. In fact, that is what science invites us to do. So um, I would suggest that all uh, who are interested in looking at explanations for events, some of which be, are straightforward and some of which may be nefarious, you should sign up for the scientific toolkit, and that means that you are obligated to its standards um, rather than uh, leaping to the last page and assuming that you've diagnosed the problem and uh, falsely granting the notion, the, the uh, label theory. Uh, so far, so good. I, I understand exactly what you're saying and its importance, but then you and I both run into a snag. The reality is that a lot of what is now happening is quite profoundly anti-reason, anti-science, even scornful of enlightenment values. Uh, um, I recently talked to Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay about their book, uh, uh, Cynical Theories, uh, Theory, and they highlight the fact that postmodernism rejected not all of the great theological worldviews, the great political worldviews, including, funnily enough, the very Marxism, uh, the, the cultural version of which I think probably largely drove postmodernism, but also the Enlightenment, science, reason, and modern thinking. Uh, and then critical theories picked up, if you like, uh, and taken an amazing hold despite its real emptiness at its heart uh, on, on campuses right across the West. And my impression is that it's particularly strong in, on a lot of American campuses. So you've actually got people who say, no, science won't provide the answers. Don't go to science. How did we get to that Well, point? you certainly do. There's a conspiracy <laughs> there, I'm sure. Um, yes and no. There may be collusion, but I think there's a simpler explanation that is uh, at the core, which is we unfortunately, and this might be another uh, American defect, we embraced the idea that market forces were the right way to administer science. And those market forces 
in fact, upset the delicate balance. They disrupt science. And so much of what we call science now is really the product of science departments. It's the product of people with scientific degrees, but it does not follow the scientific method, and it should not carry the same power uh, in our minds. So if you want to dethrone the postmodern movement and all of its outgrowths, which we should, because it is simply about power and it does not have the ability to navigate difficult problems of the kind we face. But if you want to, to dethrone it, the way to do that is to make science robust and to insulate it from market forces so that scientists can tell us what we need to know rather than what we want to hear. I, yeah, I understand that, and uh, uh, that's a very useful set of insights. Can I just pose to you the question that we need more than just information, though, and reason to guide us? We actually need hope. We need philosophical underpinnings that make us uh, believe that it's worth getting out of bed, uh, that uh, we ought to be doing the right thing by our community, we ought to be honest about ourselves and striving to be our best. Uh, in a struggle for power, those things seem to be jettisoned. So. Can I ask you, as we draw this to a close then, you've given us an idea of what we can take out of good science, properly applied reason, if you like. Where, in your view, can I ask you, uh, is your perspective on what we might believe about ourselves if we're to find a sense of hope and a sense of unity for young people in an age when, as Jonathan Haidt puts it, we're raising our children to believe that life is actually a battle between good and good people and bad people. We're drawing the dividing line between good and bad in the wrong places all the time. And identity politics is both a product of that uh, and an accelerant of it. I would argue that science is necessary, but not sufficient. That in effect, we are looking at moral obligations which cannot be derived strictly from scientific conclusions. So, um, we, of course, are in a, a serious pickle if what the scientific establishment delivers us is something that isn't factually based. But even in the case that we, um, that we have a factually based explanation for things, we need to go further. And you're right, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, of philosophy. But I would also point out that because of the vulnerability of a... Uh, overly market-focused scientific process, the niche is open for those who are seeking power to exploit effectively a narrative gap that what we could understand about ourselves and what I think we would realize if we had a more robust understanding of who we are, how we got here, what its implications are for modern life, uh, the the absence of that robust story is leaving people to paint pictures which place them at advantage. And the truth is, we are incredibly lucky to be here. We are incredibly lucky not only to have the ability to, to wield power in our collective interest, but we have minds that allow us to understand meaning to recognize each other's humanity as similarly important to our own. And we are therefore capable of fantastic feats of compassion and insight 
and we are capable of recognizing the sobering responsibility of not wrecking the place and thereby denying it to future generations of people. So uh, I, I want scientists at the table. I also want artists and philosophers and uh, humanitarians present so that we can recognize what a marvelous and awesome responsibility we have and we can live up to it. Well, uh, one great thinker, the Frenchman, uh, referred to uh, humans as the, uh, the glory and the scum. And uh, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's something to be said for being humble enough to recognize each of us that we're flawed uh, and, uh, and big enough to recognize the bigness in others uh, and find some recognition of the intrinsic value of uh, the lives and the freedoms of those around us as well as our own. Uh, but, uh, but Brett, I, I admire your courage. So many academics have folded when they should have stood for truth and for decency and for proper discussion. Uh, you did not. And uh, you continue, I think, in an incredibly decent and dignified way to argue the case. So I just, uh, I just salute you and, and thank you enormously uh, for the inspiration that you provide. And again, you see, here's the point. Uh, we don't have to 100% agree to admire those qualities and to say, I need to engage with those things and we need to find the common ground and to build on it. And that's what's so lacking. Uh, and, and I think you've really powerfully reminded us and continue to remind people with the work that you do uh, uh, of, of the need to restore that balance. Well, if I can say one thing to your audience in particular, you, you said several times in our discussion um, that the world was looking to America to remember uh, who it is. And uh, I feel this keenly. I think uh, we did pioneer something marvelous. And there is a reason that the West is as powerful and dynamic as it is, because what the United States pioneered was truly special. The problem is we Americans have forgotten what it was. And I'm very much hoping that uh, Australians and others can help to remind us, because there's a lot in our character that looks like uh, Australia's character, and if you can um, help us to see um, where the better angels of our nature have gone, I think it would be a tremendous service to the world. Well, Brett, again, thank you. And I draw some comfort in terms of those remarks because Australia is not a huge country by American standards. Uh, but I did see a survey the other day that said that the Americans, more than any other people on earth, regard the Australians as most the most likable and decent and trustworthy uh, anywhere else. So uh, from this Australian to you as a very fine American, uh, I, I just say all power to your right arm as you seek to be a civilizing influence. Sorry to use that old fashioned word, but I think it's a very powerful one. Well, I'll take it. Uh, thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks, Brett. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net dot au